What a wonderful time of worship already, and a new song for us. If you haven't picked up the book of the month, that's I had not sang that song before until I read about it in that book, and I was encouraged that we should be singing that song and more psalms that have been reorganized, metrical psalms they call them. Lord willing, we will continue to do that. The Good Shepherd is what we just sang about, and the Good Shepherd said that part of the Great Commission is to teach believers in the church to observe. Teach and observe, Jesus says, all that he commanded. And so we're doing that. We're doing that through our worship as we sing, our worship as we pray, our worship as we read scripture. And we're doing that through the preaching and receiving on your end of God's word. And even though Paul wrote the book of Romans, which we've been looking at for some time, these are the words that have come through Paul, but that Christ has sent Paul to proclaim. Paul is an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ to speak in his stead. And so sometimes people say, well, I don't like that apostle Paul, but I love Jesus. Well, that's a problem because the apostle Paul is speaking the words of Christ to us through his letters to the churches. So we're in the book of Romans this morning, Romans 11, and we want to see what Paul has to teach us about his people, the Israelites, and the Jews, and this current relationship that we have, and God's overarching history of salvation. Romans 11, I want to read to you the passage that I'll be preaching from this morning. And we've been looking at Romans 11 for a few weeks here. Romans 11, 11 through 15. I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I like to read a lot of history after Bible and theology and church history. I like to just read world history, American history, European history, Western history, and so on. And one thing that I commonly see by secular writers even is that this idea that history is moving to a point, that history has a purpose, and it's the whole world is moving towards as if, Some unseen hand is behind everything as moving towards a purpose. The ancient philosophers spoke of this. And as I read many of these history books, I think the secular writers don't even understand that they are glorifying God through what they're teaching about history. As we see God working out in his providence all things for his glory, all things that will glorify his name in the end. This morning, we're looking not just at history in general, though. We're looking at the history of how God has saved people. In particular, we're looking at the history of Israel, where they were, where they are now, and their future history. God's already telling us what will happen in the future here with the ethnic people, Israel. You'll recall that God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He worshiped false gods, but God saved him out of that land and brought him into a new land and promised him all of these blessings, a land, descendants, and also 
God said, I will be your God and I will raise up from you one who will bless all the earth. We know that that's Jesus Christ. Now that Christ has come, now that Abraham's physical descendants have the Messiah promised to them, we know in Scripture it shows us that they rejected him. For the most part, they rejected him. So Paul's been answering this question. What about Israel? It's a question still on people's minds today. Sometimes it's the wrong question. It's more about the modern state of Israel and the wars going on. And we should be praying for that. And we should be concerned about that. And we should pray for Jerusalem. But they don't understand what the Bible has to say about Israel. First and foremost, it's not from the newspaper that we get our biblical understanding. It's from the Bible itself. And so what we want to do is continue Paul's argument that he's making here in Romans 11. And it started back in verse 1. I say then, has God rejected his people? In Paul's day, and today it's the same question, has God rejected his people? Is he done with Israel? And we're going to see that Paul brings out this argument. No, he's not done. He's already taught us, Paul said, that God's not done because there's a remnant and Paul's part of that remnant. Yes, there's some who've been hardened. But he's also now going to argue that God is working something out in the history of salvation. That God has a purpose for what's going on right now. It's not as if Israel's rejection of their Messiah and the Gentiles coming in has somehow been a surprise. Or somehow God's plan B. Like it didn't work out with Israel. Now we're going to have plan B. That's not what God has done at all. You know, I used to hear that in a, when I was first saved in a church that didn't teach from the Bible so much. And they said, the New Testament is God's plan B. And the Old Testament was God's plan A. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. It took me seven years to to go somewhere else and learn that that wasn't right. What God's doing through history in regards to salvation is what he's covering just in a few verses. But in chapter 9, he was getting very specific. He was talking about individuals, what God is doing when he elects some and he passes over others. Here, the camera lens has backed out and he's looking at the whole forest, not just each individual tree. He's looking at the big picture, the 30,000 foot level picture of what is going on with history. What is going on? What is God's overarching plan to save the nation Israel and to fulfill his promises of salvation to the seed of Abraham? The full answer is not just that there's a remnant. The full answer is not just that there's Jews who are being saved now and are in the church and that are worshiping with Gentiles. Praise the Lord for that. And Paul's been writing all about that in Romans. But in this paragraph, we're going to see four great themes of Israel that are brought out here by Paul of Israel's history. Four great themes of Israel's history, not just their history in general, but their salvation history. Just meaning, what's God doing to save them? And keep his promises to the fathers. First of all, the great transgression of Israel in verse 11. Israel has has committed many sins. You can read about them in the Old Testament. You often just say, why are they so stubborn? Why do they keep going back into sin? Then you remember yourself. You remember why you keep going back into sin. They had idolatry. They, They turn from the true God who brought them out of Egypt and they worshiped idols. God gave them everything. He gave them a land. And they did idolatry and they did injustice amongst the widows, to the widows, to the children, to the orphans, amongst themselves. They did not follow the law. But the greatest sin they ever committed 
was the rejection as a whole of the Messiah. The Messiah that the Father sent his son into the vineyard. The parable of Jesus and the vineyard. He, he sent his son into the vineyard and they said, let us kill the son and we will take over the vineyard. That's the greatest sin. It's not even a question. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. It was all within the providence of God though. It was within his sovereign will that he raised up Pontius Pilate, that he put the Romans over Israel at that time in history, that the Greek language was so prevalent at that time in history, and that the Jews would call out, crucify him, crucify him. So Paul now restates a question that he's been bringing up a lot. And he says in verse 11, he says, I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? This gets at their transgression. This is part of their history. Just like we can look at the history of mankind where Adam stumbled and fell in sin. The question Paul brings up is, did they stumble so as to fall? The they here is ethnic national Israel. Ethnic national Israel. Mostly made up of unbelieving Jews. That's the assumption throughout this whole section. The big question that that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 to 11 is, what about the unbelieving nation? Of Israel. He's not talking about the church here. The context is clear. If you look, go back to verse 1, just of of chapter 11. I say then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? The context is clear. All commentators agree, no matter what their thoughts are on Israel and the church, they all agree he's talking about ethnic Israel here. His people, God's people. Present tense, God is still calling them his people even though the majority of them are not following him. Why would he do that? Because he made promises to their fathers and because he is going to save them. That's where Paul's going here in chapter 11. Before we're done with chapter 11, you'll see that. Paul uses the name Israel to speak of the nation, the ethnic people, not the church. In 1 Corinthians 10, 18, he says, look at the nation Israel. He's he's using an example of how they, they sacrifice. And he says, look at the nation Israel. Meaning you you can go to the temple in Paul's day and you can see the nation. Not not borders. Don't think in the Bible when you read about nation necessarily borders. Don't think just about the modern state of Israel. Think about the people of Israel. He says, look at the nation Israel. 1 Corinthians 10.18 Now they're not called as people because of anything they've done. They're not called as people because they've somehow earned that status. Paul has made that clear. He says many times, that there are many who do not believe. In chapter 10, he says they're responsible for that. Even though God is sovereign over all things, man is responsible for his own rejection of Christ, which is a sin. In 11.2, he says he foreknew them. That's predestination language. As a nation, he foreknew them. As a nation, he elected them. Not every individual Jew will be saved. They're not all elect, but as a nation, he has elected them. 11, 2 through 6, he described the present remnant. 7 through 10, he says the rest were hardened. Presently, as we look at it today and in Paul's day, there is a very small percentage of Jews who are saved. They believed in the Messiah. They're in the nation of Israel today. They're spread around the world. These are Messianic Jews, sometimes we call them, or sometimes just believing Jews, Christians in the church. But now in verse 11 of chapter 11, He's once again discussing the nation as a whole. He's not talking about just the remnant here. It's obvious by what he's saying. He's talking about the nation as a whole. And he says, did they stumble? Of course they stumbled. 
They stumbled in the sin that they committed. The word here means to, to lose one's footing, to trip. Figuratively used here to describe making a mistake, going astray, sinning. Did they sin in rejecting the Messiah? Yes, that's obvious. He's not making light of that. He's not saying they get off the hook because they're Jews. Somehow there's another way to heaven. They can just obey the law. No, no, he's already dealt with all of that in chapter 10. He's saying they actually did sin. As a nation, as a whole, they sin. And not just the normal way of sin. But as the whole nation, they sin by rejecting the Messiah. If you look back at Chapter 9, verse 33. He quotes from Isaiah about this stumbling. He quotes Isaiah 28. Behold, this is God. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. God put the stone there. The stone is salvation for those who believe. And it's a stumbling stone for those who are unbelieving. But Paul says, even though they stumbled, even though they stumbled, did they fall? Was the result of their stumbling a catastrophic fall. Literally, the word fall means fall to the ground here. But again, he uses it to describe figuratively a failure, a bringing about of destruction. We might say they tripped, but did they fall and crack their head open? Did they fall and die? Did they fall utterly is the idea. Did they fall permanently? Did they fall so as to never get up again? That's the question. Has God completely cast them off because they rejected Christ? As a nation, is God done with them? Is he finished with Israel? Even though the majority are unbelieving, is he completely done? And Paul says once again, we see this come up a lot in Romans to these questions. May it never be. The strongest you can say it in Greek. You've heard me say that. Certainly not. The King James says, God forbid. The idea is it could never, ever, ever happen. There's the way that he phrases these words, it could never, ever, ever happen. No, a thousand times no, is how one commentator describes this. Israel's situation is not irreversible. In other words, it is reversible as a nation. Not saying individually, God has somehow changed his mind in time and electing people that he did not once elect before the foundation of the world. No, as a nation. May it never be that they have stumbled so as to permanently fall. Now, God does not intend their fall to be a permanent situation is the idea. Yes, they're stumbling. It looks like they're going to fall and, and die, but God's going to come in at the last moment. Right before Christ returns, he's going to come in and pick them up and set them back on their feet. His plan, God's plan is completely different than what appears to us right now. Right now, if we just take an assessment of the way things look, it's not looking too good for Israel. That's why Paul is talking about what is to come. And he's making this argument from the now to what is to come. Look what else he says in verse 11 here. Even though they had this transgression, but by that transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. It's wrong to think that God is done with Israel, Paul is saying. Rather, God is sovereign over all things. Even their rejection right now is proving to be a blessing to the nations, to all the Gentiles. God is using their rejection to take the gospel to the world. That's exactly what he said would happen in the Old Testament. That's what he said in the prophets. That's what he said back in the days of Moses, that they would reject Yahweh and he would then take salvation to the world. 
Even though Israel had this great sin, even though they rejected their Messiah, even though it seems like right now they've been rejected by God, Paul says they haven't. Because their transgression has brought about salvation to the world to make them jealous, Paul says. Israel transgressed against God. They continue to do so. They will for some time into the future, as far as we can see. We don't know when Christ is going to return. But this means salvation then goes to the Gentiles. And it wasn't plan B. This was all designed beforehand by God. This is his purpose in salvation history. They would reject the Messiah. It would then go to the Gentiles. The gospel would. The Gentiles would be saved. And in turn, that would make the Jews jealous. And then they would accept Christ as they look at the Gentiles who are receiving all these blessings. You can't thwart God's plan is the idea here. Israel can't thwart God's plan. The church can't try to thwart God's plan and change it. No one can change God's eternal, sovereign, holy plan. So the end result is going to be that their national rejection of salvation eventually will come back around and be the salvation of their nation. Joe Beakey, who edited the Reformation Heritage Study Bible, the comment there on this passage, the fall of Israel was not the end of the matter, but the occasion for the gathering of the large numbers of Gentiles into the kingdom. Speaking of now, he says this in turn was intended by God to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's got to be God's plan. We would never come up with that, right? And, And with our sin that still can come out, we would be scheming and making all these plans and things up where we would force people to do what we want. But no, every one of these Israelites who rejects the Messiah is doing it of their own volition because that's what they desire. And yet God is sovereign over it all. And he's using that to eventually bring the gospel back to that nation. And they will be provoked to jealousy. That's the wisdom of God. We couldn't come up with that. It's hard for us to even read this and understand it sometimes. Romans 11, I was just listening to a famous preacher and he was saying, you know, Romans 9 and Romans 11, those are great chapters, but those are really hard to exposit. I mean, you're just dealing with doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And some of it is challenging to organize and understand. And yet Paul's real clear. They did not stumble so as to permanently fall. Let's look secondly, we look first at the transgression. Let's look at the future abundant salvation of Israel. He's not quite up to the point in verse 26 of this chapter where he'll say all Israel will be saved. But he's building up. He's taking steps to get to that point. He's building an argument, building his case. While ethnic Israel is currently unbelieving for the most part and are under judgment by God, the Gentiles are receiving the riches of God in salvation. Right now, Israel's promised an even greater salvation. And I don't mean greater in the sense they'll get a different salvation. That's not what Paul means. He's just saying based on how many will be saved in the future? Look at verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. Now, we looked at transgression already in verse 11. That, that's a sin. That's transgressing the law of God. God commanded them to believe. God commanded them to repent. And they did not. But Paul adds another description here. He says their failure. Their, their failure. Your translation might have their loss. Same idea here. Their failure, their loss. It's another way of describing the rejection of the Messiah. Here he came and they rejected him. 
That's their failure. That's their loss. And so the idea is that currently in Paul's day up to today, they failed to attain the promised salvation. The salvation that was spoken of in the Old Testament, they failed to grasp it. They failed to attain to it. They failed to recognize it. They turned away from it. But all of this, their transgression and their failure, all of this, Paul says, is riches for the Gentiles. It's, it's riches. It, it's the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Have you ever thought that of all the people in your family tree going back, at some point you're going to hit some unbelievers? At some point you're going to hit people that never were in a Christian culture? At some point you're going to hit someone, if you're a Gentile here, you're going to hit someone who wasn't even in a country that had the gospel? Now, we typically can't trace that far back in our lineage. But if it had not been for this rejection and God's eternal plan that all of this would happen, the gospel wouldn't have gone out to the Gentiles. Not that God couldn't have done it a different way. He could have done it any way he pleased. But once he has decreed that this would happen, it must happen this way. Once it's in scripture telling us that, it must come to pass as time goes on. And we see that here in scripture. Israel has turned from the riches offered to them. And this is all part of God's plan to bring the riches to the Gentiles. In this case, Paul says then, how much more will their fullness be? He likes to use this argument all scripture writers do. It's from the lesser to the greater. If this lesser thing is true, how much more is this greater thing going to be true? An argument from the lesser to the greater. If they've sinned, if they've turned from God, and that's brought riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? The original ones that God made this promise to in Genesis 12, their transgression, their failure is the lesser here. And the great blessing that's coming at the end of time when God saves the whole nation is the greater. That's the fullness. It's like what Paul said in Romans 5.20. Wonderful verse. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How is that possible? That sin increases, and even that's in the sovereign plan of God, and grace abounds even more. It's never an excuse for us to sin. We can't say, we're helping you out, God. Romans 5 and 6 are all about that, especially chapter 6, right? We can't say, we're helping you out by sinning, God, so you can give us more grace. No, he's saying, even though the world just increasingly gets more and more sinful, and individuals get more and more sinful, and sin increased and increased, grace abounded all the more. The fullness that Paul's talking about here in Romans eleven twelve 12 is referring to the full restoration of ethnic unbelieving Israel in the end times, which is pretty much the whole nation, right? Ethnic unbelieving Israel. If you go to eleven 25, I've already mentioned it because that's the high point of the chapter here. For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Two separate people groups here. Israel on the one hand, the Gentiles, all the nations that are not Israel. On the other hand, all the peoples that are not Israel. Verse 26, so all Israel, the same Israel in verse 25, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We'll come to that in time. But that's the idea of the fullness. That's what Paul is building up to. 
We can't just focus on what we see now in the world. We can't just say the way things are now are the way things will always be until Christ comes back. No, God has made promises. Paul is reminding us of those, and he's telling us God will fulfill those promises. You know, when it comes to stock market investing, you probably heard past performance is not indicative of future results. Be careful where you put your money because you don't know if those past results that were so good are still going to be there in the future. But when God's word says that the future results will be good, we can trust that. We can trust that. And that's what it's saying here. How much more will their fullness be? A clear contrast here between Gentile and Israel. A clear contrast from the lesser to the greater. How much more so will it be with Israel? God's word gives us hope for the future. We can read this even if we're not Jewish and it gives us hope. God's going to fulfill his promises. That's why this is here in Romans because Romans 8 said God is going to make sure you don't stumble and fall. Because Christian, you sin too. How do you know you're not going to lose your salvation? Romans 8 was all about that. He gave us answer after answer as to why God would never cast us out if we have the spirit, if we're born again. But the question comes up, well, what about Israel? And that's what Paul's dealing with, Romans 9, 10, and 11. What about Israel? Paul says, you're not understanding. Let me show you about Israel. So God's word tells us that they will all believe in Christ. Israel did stumble, and Jesus made it clear they would be punished for doing so. Matthew 23, 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Speaking of the, the Romans who would come in and destroy the city and the temple. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say. So they are going to see him. He's not saying they'll never see him. Israel will never see him again. You will not see me until, time marker, until you say something. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's something that somebody with a regenerate heart says. Blessed comes my Savior is the idea. That's when they'll see him again. But their punishment is not the end. Even though the city would be wiped out, even though the temple would be destroyed, even though there has been much turmoil with Jews throughout history and much anti-Semitism and hatred towards them, God says that's not the final say. That's not the final say. Here's what the Puritan Richard Sibb said. He said, when the fullness of the Gentiles is come in, then comes the conversion of the Jews. Why may we not expect it? They were the people of God. We see Christ believed on in the world. We may therefore expect that they will also be called, talking about called in, there being many of them and keeping their nation distinct from others. R.C. Sproul says the Jews as a people are presently under judgment. But as there was a national judgment, so there will be a national restoration. Everybody recognizes there's a judgment on the Jews. The Bible says that. But the Bible also says there's a restoration coming for Israel. Number three, the third theme. So we looked at the transgression. Now we're working our, our way through history. Paul's kind of jumped ahead in verse 12 and told us the end, but he goes back a bit now. And number three, he says, the ministry of Gentiles provoking Israel. That's a great theme that he brings up here. And he even tells us how he's involved in that. God has decreed that while Israel is in the rejection of Christ, Gentiles are provoking Israel to jealousy, which is supposed to make them want to look to Jesus as Savior. We know it's, it's not going to do it a whole lot. There's not going to be a large number. 
eventually in the end times, God is going to use us. That's what he was talking about in verse 11. Now he's talking more about the right now in Paul's ministry and in this age, the church age up until today. Paul has mentioned this provoking back in chapter 10, verse 19. He brings this theme of jealousy up. We even saw it. Didn't we see it in Acts 17 today? He went to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues. And then they were jealous. They were jealous when he took it to the streets. Let's go back to 1019 here. But I say, did Israel not know? And he quotes Moses. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 21. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. Now, the, the Gentiles have their, their kings and their nations, but it's not his nation. He's going to make them jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. All in God's plan. They're going to reject him. He's going to make them jealous. What they didn't know is it was going to be by sending the Messiah and the gospel to the Gentiles. Even we see a glimpse of that, don't we, in Jesus' ministry. He goes up to Sidon and Tyre. He goes to the Decapolis. Those are areas where Greek-speaking peoples live, not Jews in his ministry. God is going to make them jealous. If we think about what God's jealousy is, it's not a sinful envy. It's not the kind of spite that we often have when we talk about jealousy. God's jealousy means God's zealous protectiveness of all that belongs to him. Himself, his name, his glory, his people, his sole right to receive worship and ultimate obedience, his land, his city. He speaks of those in the Old Testament as being jealous of them. And Israel should be worshiping God. They should come to God through Christ, but they haven't. And so in his his holiness, in his sovereignty, he is going to make them jealous. Not by sinning. God cannot sin. He cannot lie. There's no darkness in him. But he is going to, in his eternal plan, Make them turn to Christ in the end. And they will want to. It's not going against their will. They will want to when they have a new heart given to them as the new covenant promised. Look at Romans eleven thirteen. Paul says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's directly addressing the Gentiles in the Roman church. Sometimes you read a passage and you say, what's, what's the point for me? And sometimes doctrinally speaking, the point is change your thinking, change your doctrine. And that's what we're looking at in much of Romans 9 to 11. Now he addresses a specific group. It applies directly to us. If we're a Gentile today, he's speaking directly to you here. He's saying, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. The Roman church, mostly Gentiles. There would be some Jews there. That's why he keeps coming back to these topics in his letter. But it's mostly made up of Gentiles. He'll have further words for us Gentiles later in this chapter. But he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's concerned that the mostly Gentile church might not understand this rightly. They might go astray in their thinking. The church might get off track in the differences between ethnic Israel and the church. And he says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Now he sets himself up as an example. Okay, that's wonderful. Someday God's going to bring in the elect nation, the covenant people that he spoke to and said he would bring them in. But what about now? Well, Paul says, here's what I'm doing. And as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He's saying here that what it means for me, what it means for me right now as an apostle, Paul's a Jew sent out by Christ in the place of Christ to speak 
to the Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he says, I glorify my ministry. That's literally what it means. I, I glorify, not myself, but I glorify my ministry. Most translations have it magnify. And I think that's the right understanding here. He, he is magnifying his ministry by taking the gospel to the Gentiles. How does that work? Paul, aren't you a Jew? Don't you say you care about the Jews? Don't you want to see them saved? Look at verse 14. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. That's his ministry. Even though he's taking it to the Gentiles, this in turn will make his fellow countrymen, literally my flesh, Paul says. My flesh. Paul, Paul's loving attachment to his ethnic people causes him here to say my flesh, but we wouldn't understand it. So it says fellow countrymen in translation. He says, look, I am fulfilling this overall purpose of God because I've been sent to the Gentiles. And when they hear the gospel and believe, in turn, that's going to make Israelites, Jews, jealous. And that might save some of them. He's not thinking about the fullness that will come in. He's thinking about between now and then, what do we do? We take the gospel out. We take the gospel and we're going to see a lot of Gentiles come into the church. But that's serving God's plan even now because it will make some Jews jealous and they will be saved through that. That's Paul's ministry. If you go forward in Romans 15, he mentions this just in general proclaiming of the gospel. Romans 15, 20. And in this way, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel. Not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. And he goes on to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles. He is proclaiming Christ. That's his mission. He said that in the very beginning of the letter, if you go all the way back to the beginning. Romans 1. In verse 1, Paul is slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Not just called as a Christian, but selected, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on to mention what his purpose is down in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's his mission statement to go out, to take the gospel to the world, to show people how they can receive the righteousness of God through faith. So what's Paul's ministry? What's his purpose now? To sit around and worry about when the end times are going to happen. To think about what's going to happen in the future. Not wrong at all, but he's also active and working. And he's doing something right now. He's not provoking Israel in a sinful way. He's not persecuting them. He's not going out to harm them. He's simply proclaiming the gospel and letting God do the work. And God said, I will make them jealous. God will do the work. You Take the gospel out, Christian. You take the gospel out. You are not the Apostle Paul, but you can still do your part and take the gospel and just tell people the truth about Jesus. And then people will get saved. And you don't understand it, but in all of salvation history, God is using you to bring about Jews being saved, whether now or in the future. You know, the problem, as John MacArthur says, unfortunately, the Christianity that the Jews see today and many professed Christians and even some genuine Christians reflects little of the love and righteousness of Christ and of salvation he brings. 
When they see Gentile Christians, MacArthur says, who are dishonest and immoral, and especially those who are anti-Semitic in the name of Christ. And he goes on, sort of ranting about Christians today. The modern church. I mean, what is there to be jealous of in so many Christian churches today? Our personal lives. Would a Jew look at you and say, what is it that you have that I don't? What do you mean you believe in the Messiah? Now, they may not always give us that option to go through the Bible with them. But the idea is somebody ought to notice that you're living as a Christian. I had this actually happen once long ago when I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. And we'd gone through some very hard times. And one of the guys I knew, my financial advisor, was a Jew. And he knew how bad things were getting financially for us as a family, just getting started out of college and so on. And he said, Michael, how do you even have hope in times like this? How, how do you even have hope? And I said, God, Christ, Jesus Christ. I didn't get a long chance to go on about it, but he asked. He recognized something different. And we all need to live in such a way that Jews would recognize something different about Gentile Christians. They certainly knew Paul was different when he showed up. They tried to kick him out of the city. They tried to stone him. They tried to kill him. And he was a Jew, but he was preaching to the Gentiles, and he was preaching that Gentiles could be saved. All right, fourthly, the fourth great theme here. So we've looked at the transgression of Israel. We've looked at the future abundant salvation of Israel. We've looked at the ministry of Gentiles provoking Israel. Now Paul talks about the new life in Christ for future Israel. Not life as in the ongoing walking of a Christian, but just being born again, that kind of life. God is using Israel's current rejection to bring salvation to the Gentiles. But in the future, God's going to regenerate the hearts of all Israel to believe in the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 15 here of chapter 11. It's another comparison of the lesser to the greater argument. For their rejection is the reconciliation. If the rejection is the reconciliation of the world... That's the lesser here. Still very important. I mean, this is amazing, right? This is the lesser, and we're receiving the benefits and the blessings of this. Reconciliation, making peace with God through Christ. When we have faith, we're at peace. Paul's already looked at that earlier in Romans 5 and in Romans 6, what that means to have peace with God. Romans 8 talks about that. Adoption and so on, the Spirit. But look, the subject here of this verse we often read this and we think, okay, their rejection means they've rejected the Messiah. But actually, all throughout this verse, this verb and the next one we'll look at with their acceptance is God as the subject here. God has rejected them, not permanently, but temporarily. Temporarily, in the sense that they're not all saved. They're not all elect. They are being punished. They are being judged. So Paul says, if their rejection by God is the reconciliation of the world, by the gospel going out to all the Gentiles. I mean, look at this. The Gentiles, the nations, have peace with God through Christ our Lord. Why? We shouldn't celebrate this. We shouldn't celebrate when people reject the Lord. But that's what Paul's saying. If their rejection takes the gospel to the world, what will their acceptance be with life from the dead? How much more when they're born again? Some people take this as the resurrection, but I think this is just 
what the New Testament speaks of. Being born again. Ephesians 2 speaks of this. Go forward to Ephesians 2. He uses the same kind of description here. Life from the dead. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. They're dead in their transgressions. They rejected the Messiah. We, Gentiles, we were dead before God changed our heart. We were dead. Not just sick. Not just feeling a little bit like rejecting God today. We were dead. We were a skeleton laying on the ground. We were six feet under. We weren't just in the water needing a life preserver. We're at the bottom of the ocean and nothing but a skeleton is left. You're dead. And he describes what that looks like. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You just, you acted like the sinful world before you were saved. You walked according to the ruler or the power of the air. You followed Satan. Oh, you might not have had pentagrams and done seances and all of that. But you were essentially doing what Satan wanted you to do. You walked according to the, to the life that Satan wanted. The, he's the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on. He just keeps on stacking these up against us. Among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh. Doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest. Just like those unbelievers today that you think of. And they're just living their own life in sin. And enjoying it. And getting worse and worse. That was you. Paul says. But God. Verse 4. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of his great love. With which he loved us. And he once again says. Even when you were dead in your transgressions. God did what? He made us alive. He didn't just throw us a life preserver. He didn't say, if you would like to come and see me and talk to me, he says that God made us alive. We were dead and he made us alive. That's what's going to happen with Israel and the fullness when it comes in. In the end times, they're going to have a changed heart. The best passage for this is in the Old Testament, really, though. Ezekiel 37. You need to go back to Ezekiel 37. By the way, if you ever need a Bible here and you don't have one or you just want to Maybe follow along a little closer with the one I'm using. There's one underneath the chairs in front of you. Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10. We'll look at 1 to 14, but really 1 to 10 is this language of life from the dead. Now he's talking to Israel. Ethnic Israel. The nation that's been taken away into captivity. Ezekiel is the prophet also in captivity. And he is prophesying the words of God. So he speaks now of the future hope. Ezekiel 37.1, the hand of Yahweh was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of Yahweh. This is Ezekiel speaking. He caused me to rest in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So he takes Ezekiel and he puts him in this vision state. He puts him in a valley full of bones. There's just bones everywhere. And he calls me to pass among them all, all around. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. I mean, they've been there a long time. These bones are brittle. They're ready to break and turn to dust. These things are deader than dead. In verse 3, he said to me, this is what God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And we would have said no, but Ezekiel's a little wiser than that. He says, O Lord Yahweh, you know. I don't know, God, what you're doing here, but you know. Verse 4, then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says 
the Lord Yahweh to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. They're dead. These bones are brittle. They're like dust. There's no possible way they can be brought back to life. And yet, the word of God goes out. The prophet, the the preacher preaches to them. And it says that you may come to life. And he describes that process. I will put sinews on you. Make flesh come up upon you. Cover you with skin. Put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rumbling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And the bones are shaking, they're rattling. They're starting to move together. He's seeing all of this happen. He says, I looked and behold, sinews were on them. I mean, he's seeing the, the connective tissues come on the skeletons now. And then the, the flesh, the, the, the muscle and the skin covered them. And there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great military force. Then, verse 11, he said to me, son of man, can these bones, who are the whole house of Israel, behold, They say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. So they're they're made alive. But Israel saying, you know, we're cut off. What are we to do? Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open your graves. I will cause you to come out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. He's not talking about the final resurrection. He's just saying, you think you're dead. You think you've been cast off. You think God has forgotten about you, but I'm going to bring you back to life one day. All the people will follow Yahweh. They'll be brought into the land. Then you will know I am Yahweh. You won't be confused and worship other idols. You won't be sinning in that way. You'll worship the one true God. I will put my spirit. Now this is the new covenant here. How do we know they're never going to turn back? I will put my spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, and you will come to life. He's promising Israel the blessings of the new covenant. It first goes to Israel and its proclamation here. Then later we learn by Jesus and others that it's applied to the Gentiles. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. This is... An example of life from the dead. This is the fullness that's going to come in. Paul's preaching the gospel and he's preaching to Jews and he's preaching to Gentiles and he wants to see people saved. Of course he does. That's his ministry. But there's a fullness when these bones will rattle. Not literally. These will be people who are dead in their sin and transgressions. They will be brought to life. That's what the vision means. Very clear that he's speaking to Israel here. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon on this. It's called the restoration and conversion of the Jews. And he has some interesting statements about this. He says, Israel has now become alienated from her own land. So sometimes Spurgeon would confuse Israel and the church. Usually in a theological jab at some of his opponents, like the Plymouth Brethren. But when he's preaching on a text, listen to what he says about Israel. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, talking about Israelites spread everywhere, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever. 
for her son shall again rejoice in her. Her land shall be called Beulah, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall her sons marry her. I will place you in your own land, is God's promise here to them. They are to have a national prosperity, which shall make them famous. Nay, so glorious shall they be that Egypt and Tyre and Greece and Rome shall all forget their glory and the greater splendor of the throne of David. If there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter, Ezekiel 37. He says, I wish never to learn the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land, that a king is to rule over them. From Spurgeon's The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews. There's a future from death to life going to happen with them. Just like the prodigal son who ran off and he repented. Let's not forget that. This, this teaching of the parable of the prodigal son has come up a lot in news in Christianity recently. People are misusing it. The prodigal son repented and he returns. And here's what the father says. He was lost and has been found. The son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Just like you and I, Gentile, we were lost and God found us. Paul's now saying, God's not done with Israel. He will save them. It'll be through the same Messiah we have. It's not a different gospel. It's not a second gospel. It's not obey the law gospel. It is through the Messiah. And he's just telling us that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. And we should rejoice at that. And we should take the gospel to all people, Jew or Gentile. That's our part in this. What's the application? Understand the text. Understand that God is not done. He's going to fulfill his promises to Israel, to the Gentiles as well. But he's focused on Israel here. And take the gospel out like Paul's doing. Work with the ministries of the church to do that. If you can't do that on your own or don't feel like you can, get involved in some of the evangelistic ministries. So let's pray that God would remind us of that here in this church. Oh Lord, we thank you for passages sometimes that are are difficult to work through and we've got to consider so many things. But as we become better students of the Bible, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand Paul's arguments in Romans, that we could apply them to our lives, that we could correct our thinking on this, that we could get more sharpened, Lord, so that we might serve you and help us most of all to remember who you are. You're a faithful God. You fulfill your promises. We love you for that and many other reasons. Let us rejoice even as we sing of our love for you. In Christ's name, amen.